It is my pleasure to introduce our last lecture for this afternoon, Dr. Alan Mentor. Dr. Alan Mentor is Chief of the Division of Dermatology at Baylor University Medical Center and the Chair of Psoriasis Research at the Baylor Research Institute, Clinical Professor of Dermatology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School in Dallas, Texas. After obtaining his medical degree from the University of Witwaterstrand in Johannesburg, South Africa, Dr. Mentor completed his residency in dermatology at the University of Pretoria in South Africa and fellowships at Guy's Hospital in London and St. John's Hospital for Diseases of the Skin in London as well as the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School in Dallas. Dr. Mentor is board certified in dermatology, 1978. He is involved in multiple clinical, investigative, and drug research studies, particularly those relating to psoriasis. In August 2004, Dr. Mentor helped found the International Psoriasis Council, an international organization comprising seven board members and 16 counselors, worldwide specialty dermatologists, dedicated to raising international consciousness and understanding of psoriasis as a serious immune-mediated disease with, with, with major quality of life and comorbidity implications. Currently serving as president of the International Psoriasis Council, Dr. Mentor is also a member of the American Academy of Dermatology, American Dermatological Association, American Society for Laser Medicine and Surgery, American Society of Dermatologic Surgery, British Association of Dermatology, and Society for Investigative Dermatology. Dr. Mentor is on the editorial boards of Journal of Clinical Dermatology, Specialist Medicine Dermatology, Practical Dermatology, Clinical and Experimental Dermatology, and Journal of Dermatology for Physician Assistance. He has authored or co-authored 221 journal articles, 10 book chapters, and two books. It is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Alan Mentor. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, Travis, for the, for the warm introduction. And uh, thank you for staying till the bitter end to listen to my talk. I appreciate it. I know you've had a long day. It's always a, a pleasure for me, uh, having worked with physician assistants and Christine, particularly Kachira, over the many, many years, to, to chat with you folks and kind of hope to bring you up to speed and work with Travis on the journal. And you guys are certainly, all of you, to be congratulated for the quality, as is Travis, of the journal that you folks are now putting out. So as he alluded to in, in the introduction, I spent a lot of time, probably two-thirds of my life, working on psoriasis in different areas. And I think one of the interesting aspects that I hopefully in the last five years, particularly with the advent of the biologic drugs that uh, we now into our sixth year, is the understanding of psoriasis as a quote-unquote systemic disease. And I think this is, for you folks, very important. The first thing I tell every patient when I see them with psoriasis is you don't have a skin disease. You have a systemic immunological genetic disease. So I'm going to try today in the next 45 minutes or so to go through some of the aspects of what is almost an epidemic worldwide, which is obesity, uh, metabolic syndrome, and then discuss how this impacts us as clinicians, physician assistants, researchers, 
relating to understanding psoriasis and treating psoriasis. So as always, lots of disclosures. I, I've certainly been involved with most of the uh, research companies and pharmaceutical companies relating to uh, uh, psoriasis medications, but have no personal uh, stock interest in any of the companies. So what I thought I'd do, just to introduce this obesity epidemic, uh, and there's various definitions of obesity and metabolic syndrome that I'll go through with you, is this just took an average week in our clinic. Uh, we currently have about just over 1,000 patients, Dr. McCoy, uh, who certainly works very closely with me, and our group have approximately 1,000 patients undergoing systemic therapy, both traditional systemics, methotrexate, cyclosporin, retinoids, and then all the major biologic drugs. And one of the issues that we struggle with is obviously these patients are more obese than their peers who do not have psoriasis. We try to work out why this obesity epidemic and psoriasis that is taking place worldwide is such an issue for psoriasis patients. And here's just a, a small kind of spot shot, really, of some of the patients. All of these patients would be certainly classified as having the metabolic syndrome and being obese, in other words, height-weight relationship. So that's just a, a little picture of what we're going through. So what I'd like to discuss now are the features of some of the comorbidities. And actually, this is already out of date. Just last week, I was uh, told by a colleague in Europe about a paper showing that, uh, for instance, we now have another comorbidity related to psoriasis, uh, which is uh, obstructive lung disease. So that has now been, been noted as well. So here we have the 10, uh, a lot of these run together, in other words, obesity metabolic syndrome, and then some of the other issues that I think all of us should be aware of as we approach our patients with, systemic, with a systemic disease like psoriasis. Now, the big issue that we try to debate, and we debate this, actually Christopher Griffiths and myself, who's a close colleague from Manchester, debate this a great deal. Is this true for the whole spectrum of psoriasis? Or is Mentor biased because he just sees the more severe cases who have what would be considered moderate to severe disease? And what is the role of some of these comorbidities in patients, the majority of patients with psoriasis, who have what would be considered mild to moderate disease? less than 5, less than 10% body surface area. And we certainly don't have the answer to that. And this is something that our international psoriasis group is looking at very carefully. So let's start with the, the main, what I believe is the main issue, which is this obesity metabolic syndrome issue. And here's somebody with a basal metabolic index of, of 40. And I would encourage you, there's charts available, wall charts available, and little charts that you can carry around with you that you just input the patient's uh, weight, you can do it in pounds if you want, and input their height. Just, uh, we ask every patient, and then you work out what their BMI is. And if it's over 30, by definition, that's obviously going to be uh, in the obesity range. So as I've tried to uh, impress upon you, there's no doubt that a significant proportion of patients with psoriasis, as it says here, particularly those with more severe disease, have significant components of metabolic syndrome. And the other issue is that the metabolic syndrome and obesity, as I'm going to try and show you, is not just a static disease. The fat cells, the adipocytes as they're called, which are sitting around 
uh, in people's abdomen and hips and other areas are not just static. They are pouring out chemicals and cytokines like TNF-alpha that we'll talk about as well. So how do we define the metabolic syndrome? There's multiple different definitions. I think the third one on the list here, the national, the NECP, is probably the one that most people utilize today. Uh, and, but again, let me mention to you, there is some divide between Europe and the US and other countries relating to the metabolic syndrome. Is it actually a syndrome? It's so diverse, there's so many aspects of the metabolic syndrome, it's difficult to put this into one uh, classification. Hence, a number of different classifications that you can see here. So this is the one that I believe is most commonly used, which is abdominal obesity. And again, I think the days of just measuring BMI, in other words, height and weight, is probably going to be take, overtaken by abdominal girth. In other words, measuring waist circumference. This is obviously a very sensitive issue. It's easier to ask somebody what their weight is rather than saying, well, I want to measure your abdominal girth, and they feel very, very sensitive about the fact that they may be overweight. So that's one. And recognizing as well that what is at the moment a broad classification of obesity, in other words, the BMI, is different for males and females and different for kids. And we are looking very carefully at the International Psoriasis Council, and we have a project going on for kids. Is obesity something that pediatric psoriasis patients develop first? Are they more obese? I just saw a 200, so this is, I'm talking from Texas now, 270-pound Texas kid of 11 years of age. Okay, he's massive, and he has massive psoriasis. I said to his mom, who was there, I said, how much was the birth weight? Nine pounds, 14 ounces, nine pounds, 12 ounces was the birth weight. So he was big at birth. Is that a genetic co-relationship with psoriasis, or because of his psoriasis did he sit at home, not exercising, not participating in other and other uh, relationships and got obese. We don't know that yet. And there may be some genetic relationships between obesity and psoriasis. So that's number one, abdominal obesity. Number two, very definitively, a impaired glucose regulation. I would ask you, please, that every patient who is going to be considered for a systemic agent, you need to look at the blood glucose levels on these patients. We are picking up diabetes regularly where patients have not even had a blood glucose or a fasting glucose done. Uh, and this has been seen. It's been seen in a lot of the clinical trials where patients enter uh, a clinical trial and with all the screening that you do, they develop, they are noted to have blood glucose levels. Hypertriglyceridemia, this goes with the obesity. And a low HDLC, and this is the numbers that you can see here, 40 for, for males, below 40 and below 50 for females. And then another significant issue, and this is, has significant importance, is hypertension. Can I put an obese patient whose blood pressure is 160 over 100 on cyclosporin for three months to get them over a flare? Cyclosporin we still use as an interventional drug. And if someone is obese and hypertensive, I do not put them on it unless their hypertension is controlled. So I think these are things that are easy to measure. They are aspects of it. And recognizing, as, it, as you see at the top here, that you need three or more of these. So if you have obesity, Hyper, the glucose level being up and hypertension, you have, a, you have the metabolic syndrome. Okay, so as I mentioned earlier, obesity is probably the most significant aspect and probably feeds into some of the other 
issues like the glucose and the blood pressure. So particularly visceral adiposity contributes to clustering of other risk factors. In other words, insulin-dependent insulin resistance, which leads to type 2 diabetes, which is a massive epidemic worldwide. The incidence of type 2 diabetes worldwide is going up dramatically. I can tell you I was in Saudi Arabia a few months ago, and I said, so I was doing a, a talk, and I said to the Saudis, what's the incidence of obesity in the Saudi population? Well, they have a paper out that they showed me that 15 years ago, in young males they had measured, 4% of the young males were considered obese. The incidence today is 22%. Okay, so this is what's happening worldwide. So it's not just us in the U.S. Uh, who are obese. It's a worldwide epidemic. So the dyslipidemia and the hypertension I mentioned, and I think that this next point is vitally important, and it's vitally important when we come to therapy. In other words, these are some of the cytokines that are pouring out of these fat cells, of the adipocytes, predominantly TNF-alpha and then a whole host of other ones. And you'll be reading a lot about adiponectin and leptin and resistin. These are cytokines that feed obesity and are part of the obesity syndrome. And all the pharmaceutical companies are looking at drugs to combat this or look at ways that this can stem this obesity issue and stem the appetite problem. Okay, so there may be also with this, and this is an important issue, is certain cardiovascular risk factors that relate to, uh, that may be more prevalent. Hypertension, dyslipidemia, uh, and uh, diabetes, as I said, are part of the metabolic syndrome, but our colleagues, particularly Dr. Gerald Kruger in Salt Lake, Utah, has done some excellent work to show that even in Mormon-driven Salt Lake, the psoriasis patients smoke and drink more than non-psoriasis patients. So smoking is an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease, as you well know. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that because there's some fascinating new work relating to cardiovascular disease and psoriasis. So we do have a problem. We do have to, moder to watch these patients relating to the cardiomyocytes. We have a threefold higher incidence of cardiovascular disease, MI, and stroke in patients with metabolic syndrome. And I very gently bring this point up to psoriasis patients who are obese. I say, look, folks, it's not just your psoriasis and your obesity. Let me tell you what potentially down the road could be happening to you if your primary care physician hasn't done it already. You need to watch because stroke, MI, you have independent risk for myocardial infarction having severe psoriasis by itself. Now you put obesity up, in the, up there and it's increased. So this does tend to be an issue that I believe you folks, and I think you folks have a, probably seen you folks spend more time with your patients than the average dermatologist, need to be at the forefront of discussing this in a gentle, nice, quiet way with your patients. But with this, I've mentioned some of the uncertainties. Is the metabolic syndrome number three on the list here? Is it an intrinsic aspect of psoriasis genetically, or is it a consequence thereof? In other words, are psoriasis patients inherently genetically more prone to develop obesity? And there are multiple genes out there now for obesity, and we are looking at these genes very carefully to see how they relate to psoriasis. And are only patients with more significant psoriasis the ones who are at risk for this, uh, for this issue? So what we did with the help of uh, all the five uh, biological companies, we asked them to give us data relating to 
this issue in clinical trials. And what we did with one of our medical students at UT Southwestern is to try and look at this to get more insight into what's going on in clinical trials. So what we did is we asked them to all the, the phase two and phase three clinical trials for the five biologic drugs that are approved. And this is the questions we asked of them, the history, psoriasis history, and we then did a review of these. And the five companies are, are listed here who very kindly gave us data. Uh, we then had a total of 10,000 patients who had been evaluated through clinical studies. The mean age of the patients, here's just another example of a, an, an obese psoriatic. The mean age of the patients was uh, 45 years, and as with most clinical studies, two-thirds of the patients were male because of the pregnancy issue, precluding females from entering clinical studies. Okay, here's the breakdown. As expected, psoriasis is predominantly seen in Caucasian population. Okay, and we then did, and the bottom, don't worry about the details on this, we did the classic calculation for, uh, for uh, obesity and basically came up with a BMI, average BMI, for this group of 10,000 psoriatics, all of whom had moderate to severe disease, that's why they were entering a, a biologic study, and the average BMI was over 30, which puts them in the obese category. Okay. And basically, we then did a similar study on non-psoriatics uh, and found out that there was a statistically much higher incidence of, of, of obesity in our psoriasis patients. So we do have a problem, as this, as this thing says here. Amgen did a specific study in which they reported the prevalence of, of overweight or obesity at baseline, and they found that 78%, which was even a higher percentage than we had, were overweight at baseline. And uh, here's the subjects who were obese. So overweight is a BMI of 25, as you know, and obesity is over 30. Okay, so basically 31% of U.S. adults are obese, according to, the, to, this, to the, this national health and nutrition examination. And basically, look at the figures. 65% of U.S. adults, two-thirds of U.S. adults are overweight. And 78% of our patients in this 10,000 patient base were overweight. One third of US adults are obese. Almost one half of psoriasis patients are obese by virtue of these studies. So it is an issue and it is a problem. Okay, so have there been other studies done outside of the US? Here's one by our colleague, uh, Dr. Giusondi in Italy and his colleagues, where they took 300, they can still admit patients to hospital in Europe, which we certainly cannot do here. And they looked at psoriasis versus other skin diseases like eczema and patients that they had under. And here's a, a matched group of 300 plus patients. And you can see that 30% of their patients had metabolic syndrome versus 20% of the non-psoriasis patients. And again, you can see the, the issue relating to the abdominal obesity, hypertrichosidemia, the smoking issue, and all the other aspects relating to this. So let me summarize this, that we recognize the prevalence of obesity is higher and cholesterol levels are a problem, and we do believe that patients have a statistical risk for some problems. Conclusions, we do need to follow these patients more carefully and more research is needed to see which patients are at risk. Is it just patients with the more severe end of the spectrum or is the general psoriatic population at risk because of the inflammatory nature and possibly the genetic nature of this? And we are certainly looking at this very carefully. 
Here's a slide. It's a, it's a busy slide, and if I had, if, you know, from a, uh, a pointer perspective, if you could look at this starting at the top, it's kind of a neat slide that I got out of one of the uh, endocrine metabolism journals, which talks about obesity. So if you look at obesity as basically environmental, like everything else, you eat too much, uh, or genetically based. In other words, are you born with the genetic tendency for obese? When you are obese, you're normally taking increased food, you're not exercising enough, so you have excess fat stored in the middle of the slide. And then you have two aspects relating to that. On the left-hand side, the diseases due to increased fat cell size, diabetes, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, big issue in psoriasis, steatohepatitis and fatty liver, uh, cardiovascular disease, gallbladder disease, cancer. No one has really done a good study looking at gallbladder disease and psoriasis, but almost certainly they would have had a higher incidence. And then disease due to the actual mass of the fat cells being not just the fat cell size, but the actual mass of the fat cells, osteoarthritis, sleep apnea, etc. So this is a kind of where we are. So just again to mention the importance of TNF-alpha in psoriatic skin, which as you know is increased in skin and joints, and that the adipocytes are pouring this out. And it's not just an inflammatory cytokine, but that it's, you know, if you go back on TNF-alpha, it, it was linked, it was the fat secreted agent linked to insulin resistance back 15 years ago, okay, 1993. And as I said, it correlates, the amount of TNF-alpha correlates with BMI, body fat, and, and insulin. So it plays a major role in insulin resistance, hence the diabetes issue relating to psoriasis and obesity with TNF-alpha playing a central, a central role. So a big issue, and this is what we're studying now, is to say if we take an obese psoriatic like we have here who's withdrawn, who doesn't have relationships, who's not wearing shorts, who's not going to the gym, all the quality of life issues that our psoriasis population, more severe psoriasis has, can we motivate these patients now? to reduce their comorbidity risks, reduce all the issues of metabolic syndrome, and put them on a diabetes-type exercise and diet. It's incredibly difficult. And even when we had a, an international psoriasis meeting with, with doc, in, in Dallas about three or four months ago, I asked Dr. Michael Brown, who's a Nobel Prize winner in obesity, to, to co-chair this with us. He talked about how difficult it is to get patients with comorbidities who are obese to lose weight. We had endocrinologists as part of the meeting, and they told us how rigidly they try to help diabetes patients control their weight and exercise and diet, etc. It's an incredibly difficult issue, but I believe it's something that we are going to have to face. And to me, the ideal study would be is to take patients like this once we clear them, then put them into two separate groups. One group continue their day-to-day -day lifestyle, their diet and exercise, or lack thereof, and the other one to have a diabetes-style, rigid, one-year program of diet and exercise, et cetera, and weight, and have specialists work with them and see whether, at the end of the year, what are the biochemical alterations and changes, and does it alter the psoriasis? Is it more easy to control a patient who's not obese than it is to control an obese psoriatic? And recognizing that a number of drugs that we use at psoriasis are not weight-driven. Okay, Raptiva, which looks like it's fading fast, and, uh, and uh, Remicade are certainly given on a weight-based 
uh, etanercept is not, adalimumab is not, methotrexate is not, cyclosporin is, sorioctane isn't. So we don't base our, our dosages on weight, and this, I think, has some important consequences clinically as well. So if anybody wants a review, uh, and uh, with Bruce Strober to the fore and my colleague, uh, Dr. Sterry from Berlin, we did publish an, an article, and we actually are submitting an article uh, this week, an update article based on the Dallas uh, symposium that we had to a major medical journal to see if we can get this message out. All right, so I'm going to just, so the future directions that we came up with is that we do need prospective studies, okay? We do need to measure all the systemic therapies and how this affects uh, therapy, and we need registries. We need important registries that uh, we do have the SOLAR registry that, that center core sponsors for, uh, for infliximab and other diseases, which will hopefully be, be used for eustachinumab as well. And so we do have good registries, but we are way behind our colleagues in in rheumatology who have, say, the Wolf Registry that they've been following for years and years with 15,000 patients. And they can then come up with comorbidities. And if we'd had a, a big registry for Aptiva, would we have known about PML earlier than we do now? Possibly yes. So, so items that are important may not be discovered during clinical trials. Okay, so I'm going to talk now, once we've got that, with one of my second favorite subjects is uh, psoriatic joint disease. Uh, how many of you, and let me say that, make sure that you guys are all still awake at this late hour. How many of you actually look and question for psoriatic joint disease when you see a patient with psoriasis? Great, the majority of you. And how long do you think it takes to do, for a dermatologist or a dermatology PA, to do a quick, rapid assessment for joint disease? Anybody? Two minutes, okay? So. People often say, why are you an hour behind? I said, well, I'm seeing 30 psoriasis patients, and I'm spending two minutes extra with each one. That's why I'm an hour behind. But bottom line is, here's a patient sent in to me with recalcitrant psoriasis. All of you here, I'm sure, could recognize, if you check the right knee versus the left knee, forget about the hands that have severe dactylitis. You can see the sausage fingers there. Those are permanent. This patient has only been under the care of a dermatologist. Okay, and I'm being critical with my colleagues because unfortunately most of us do not spend enough time with our dermatology, with our psoriasis patients. It's not lucrative, is it? Not at all. 30 minutes with a tough psoriatic versus five minutes taking off a basal cell or a wart or Botox. So we do have a struggle to take the time to spend from a financial perspective. But look at this patient's, I've got the second arrow at the bottom showing the knee effusion. There's a dimple on the left knee, medially. There's a certainly a convexity versus a concavity on the right knee, showing the severe, and this patient limped. I said, get up, and the patient barely could move uh, the knee. Forget about writing and doing manual dexterity things uh, that this patient has been struggling with. So we do need to identify this, very important. And here's just a snapshot of some of our patients. Take the shoes off every single patient. Take their shoes off. In fact, before you even go to the room, their shoes should be off. Okay, why? Because two aspects, look at these, two aspects are foot-driven here. One, the dactylitis on the toes, equally 
as significant as the dactylitis on the fingers. Look at the sausage toes that that patient has on the top left. And the other thing, as I do with every single patient, is I feel their Achilles and I ask them if they have heel pain or foot pain. All right, that is the classic entity called anthocytis, that the enthesium, E-N-T-H, the enthesium is the insertion of muscle into tendon into bone. And that is the hallmark of psoriatic joint disease is anthocytis. And you have to palpate and feel, and it doesn't take a second to rub, put your finger down or look at it from the back. I get them to face me away. I kneel down and have a look at the, uh, at the heels. Fortunately, I've got a, a nurse with me who can help me get up again because as I age, I don't kneel down as quickly. But bottom line is, is that we do need to prevent this from happening. And so many of our psoriatic patients are seeing a podiatrist with plantar fasciitis or heel spurs. Plantar fasciitis is the extension of the Achilles tendon going into the plantar surface of the foot is plantar fascia. And that is, gets inflamed and psoriasis. And they're having injections, they're having orthopedic things put into their shoes and things like that. And so we do need to look for that as well. And it doesn't take long to examine that. Recognizing that the patients are under your care and under our care for five to 10 years before they present with joint disease. Okay. So lots of different classifications. Uh, the Caspar group has just come up with a new classification, which is relatively easy, but very broad. And the, the, the big issue I have on this classification, which says they've got to have psoriasis, or their family history has to have psoriasis. And the old, what I grew up with back in the dark ages with psoriasis was you had to have big time psoriasis to get joint disease. That's absolutely not true. You can have minimal psoriasis, and that's why our rheumatology colleagues send us patients all the time to say, look, patient has a, a arthropathy. We think it looks like psoriasis, psoriatic arthropathy, but I can't find psoriasis. The rheumatoid factor is negative. It's not osteo, it's a young, healthy patient, but it's an inflammatory arthropathy. What is it possible? So you've got to look at the ears, you've got to look behind the ears, you've got to look at the gluteal cleft, you've got to look at the, the uh, genital region, the umbilicus, areas that may not spring to mind as classic psoriasis. And then you look for nail involvements. Nail involvement is certainly a major marker for, skin for, for joint disease. Negative rheumatoid factor, the dactylitis I mentioned to you. And the last one to me is the most probably difficult one because most rheumatoid, excuse me, most uh, Radiologists do not know the early signs of psoriatic joint disease. We are fortunate at our institution having the radiology group right next door to us. We often will say, do an x-ray for us. I think this patient has joint disease, or one of my rheumatology colleagues who we work with closely will ask the same question. And if it's a young radiologist and he's, he or she has been looking at the textbooks, psoriatic joint disease barely gets a mention. It's a new disease for radiologists. So it's fine to take the last end stage of the, like the patient with the severe, severe psoriasis sort of thing to look for new bone formation, etc. But that's too late. We have to prevent this from happening. And the three TNF-alpha agents prevent further joint destruction. So that's vitally important. But there's not enough rheumatologists worldwide to look for it. So we have to play a role. This is a, a, a slide that I put together for a, a talk I gave in Europe. This is the relationship between 
between uh, different countries. Look, we are fortunate. We have about 1.5 derms to one rheumatologist. In the UK, it's opposite. Look at Germany. How many rheumatologists do they have in Germany? Wolfram Sterry gave me this thing. There's 500 plus. It's almost a 10 to 1 derm to room ratio. So who's going to diagnose these patients? We are going to have to diagnose these patients. Okay, so a few questions that I always ask. When you wake up in the morning, do you have early morning joint stiffness? And how long does it last? Oh, yeah, it takes me about 15, 20 minutes. I've got to have a warm shower before I can move properly. And the other question I've learned to ask is that most of our patients drive a long way to see us from small town Texas or surrounding states. And I say, how long was your drive today? Oh, an hour, an hour and a half. How did you feel when you got out of the car? How are your hips? Because you've been sitting pretty static for an hour and a half in the car. And you get up out of the car and you stiff and sore. That's very different to osteoarthritis or rheumatoid, or rheumatoid arthritis. So it really is important to ask those questions historically. And what joints are hurting? Is it your neck? Is it your spine? Is it your sacroiliac joints, etc.? And then when should we as dermatologists be working with our rheumatology colleagues? And I think that's a very important. It's probably my best and closest relationship is my rheumatology colleagues that we work with. Okay. So we do look at the nails. This is a group of pictures I put together for my rheumatology colleagues looking at nail pitting, onycholysis. You all know the subungual hyperkeratosis, oil drop sign, and nail dystrophy. Pictures for the dermatologists that I've showed you already about joint disease. And then we try and check off which joints are involved and, and how is this done. So I do believe that all of us should work closely with our colleagues, but we must play a major role in diagnosing and treating as necessary uh, psoriatic joint disease. Okay, Dr. Mies and I did a paper not too long ago in which we talked about the quality of life issues relating to psoriasis and joint disease uh, collectively. So just a little issue, a little paper that I was fortunate to be part of that, that, was, that came out in, in, in the, science, uh, the online science journal, PLOS Genetics, as you can see at the bottom, which, which we're now looking for markers. We have a marker for rheumatoid arthritis, right? The rheumatoid factor. Everybody recognizes it. If you're rheumatoid negative, you're unlikely to have rheumatoid arthritis. Wouldn't it be nice to have a marker, a genetic marker for psoriatic arthritis where we can take a young person who may or may not have any joint disease and say you are at risk for psoriatic joint disease. This would allow us to initiate therapies that potentially would prevent psoriatic joint disease from ever developing. So here is a study that we did. Most of these were with Jim Kruger and Ann Bocock, who are kind of leading the way of this. And there are some new genes that have not even reached the derm literature yet that we believe are important and are associated with. And it's very interesting because the HLA gene that is mentioned here on chromosome 6 is very close to the gene for psoriasis, the, the major gene for psoriasis. So I do believe we have some issues that are maybe in the years ahead important for us. Other autoimmune diseases, and I mention this to every patient, when they say, why are you putting me on a systemic drug for psoriasis? I said, because you're no different to Crohn's disease, you're no different to multiple sclerosis, you're no different to lupus, you're no different to diabetes, except your inflammation targets your skin and your joints and possibly other organs as well. So you have a systemic disease. And we know there are some linkages genetically between all of these groups. Higher incidence of Crohn's, higher incidence of diabetes, as I've talked about, and MS as well, as you know. So I won't go into much detail, but there is a gene at the bottom of the slide on chromosome 6 
that basically is very close to source 8 gene, which is a, one of the 8 psoriasis genes, suggesting that Crohn's disease may be co-linked in a certain proportion of patients. And if you go on your history with your patients and say, bowel disease, and we have diagnosed Crohn's disease on patients who've never been diagnosed by just asking that simple question. Psychiatric disease, patients with psoriasis are depressed. They don't have a quality of life. They sit at home. They don't have relationships. They get barred from swing, public swimming pools. Or they won't go to the swimming pool and show off their psoriasis. So we do have an issue. And as a result, it's been well studied that up to 10% of young patients have suicidal ideation, which is twice. Take an 18-year-old kid, all of you are young, having psoriasis and looking at yourself every day as you get dressed in the morning. Come out of the shower and you look at the mirror and you say, yikes, look at my psoriasis. How much impetus does that give that individual person to enjoy their day, enjoy their relationships, create new relationships, and hence depression? And, and you have to recognize that. You have to recognize that that's a very important issue. Now, this to me is one of the most significant new issues that have come about, and that is cardiovascular disease in psoriatics patients. And I'm going to talk about a very interesting, couple of interesting studies. She has our colleague, Alexa Kimball, uh, from Boston, who did a, a, a risk factor analysis in which they showed that looking at databases, and a lot of evidence for this is taken from databases, two US databases, they wanted to see what the linkage was between psoriasis and cardiovascular comorbidities. So they did ICD-9 codes for psoriasis, 696.1, and ICD-9 codes for arteriosclerosis, diabetes, hypertension. They had a not group of non-psoriatics to try and match this, and basically look at the odds ratio for psoriasis patients, comparing psoriasis patients to match control. Anything over one is an increased risk. So for arteriosclerosis, 1.3, that's 30% that's more in psoriasis patients. For hypertension, 1.2, and for diabetes, 1.2 as well in the, in the data set. So it does suggest, and the other data set showed exactly the same thing, that there is an issue with this condition. Here's another uh, statistical analysis from an epidemiological perspective taken from Mayo Clinic that was published a couple of years ago that showed psoriasis as well from an epidemiological perspective is associated with a higher risk factor. And to me, most fascinating of all is this most recent two articles in the American Journal of Cardiology, the premier journal of cardiology. We are fortunate that it's based at our institution, uh, and I don't know whether putting a little pressure on the editor has, has led to these two articles, but there have been two roundtable articles in which a number of dermatologists have been involved uh, Jennifer Cather from Dallas and uh, Ken Gordon from, from uh, Chicago have been it's worked with cardiologists to show that there is an issue. And there's some very interesting, these are the two papers, one in April this past year and one uh, a few months ago in December, in which they're looking at psoriasis as a model inflammation-wise for coronary artery disease. And I think what's come out of this is that arteriosclerosis Coronary artery disease is not just fat sitting in the coronary arteries. It is a very vigorous inflammatory disease. And there are multiple cytokines within the coronary arteries that are very similar to the cytokines that we recognize in psoriasis. 
a whole host of IL-20s and a whole host of IL-22s and IL-17s and TNF-alpha sitting in the coronary artery. And the final event when somebody has an acute MI, they may have plaque in their, arterial, in their coronary arteries, but when that plaque ruptures, IL-20, which produces it is angiogenesis and increased blood vessel, that is the, one of the most important critical cytokines that causes an atheromatous plaque to pop and hence the uh, acute event. And this is identical to what happens in psoriasis and the inflammation in psoriasis. So the cardiologists are very interested in psoriasis as an entity, as a model for arteriosclerosis, which is fascinating. And this is just a nice little picture in the interest of time, I won't go to it. So in other words, the big thing that we don't know yet is will treating patients with this risk who have these cytokines circulating in the skin and the joints, and, the, and now we know as well the coronary arteries, will treating these patients potentially prevent coronary artery events in psoriasis patients? It's very tempting to suggest that, well, we now have good evidence from rheumatology that methotrexate does reduce the incidence of coronary artery disease in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. And it's very tempting to think that if we did a prospective study for five years, that the three TNF-alpha agents would have the same effect to reduce coronary artery risk as they reduce, reduce TNF-alpha. Sleep apnea, we did a quick study in Dallas with one another medical student at, at, at UT Southwestern. And look at the second, the second line here. We took 150 or 160, yeah, 154 patients and looked at the history of sleep apnea. And sleep apnea goes with obesity. And basically, we then took 150 patients without psoriasis and, and got a zero versus an 11%. Okay? So comorbidities, personal behaviors. There's a well-known dermatologist kind of uh, dressing up for Halloween uh, with uh, his... Uh, and person who, there's a prize for a person who uh, comes out with exactly who this, number one, who's the dermatologist, and number two, who is he impersonating? Anybody? Thank you. Austin Powers it is. That's correct. Yep. Okay, so that was a pretty groovy day and uh, a pretty interesting day. But I think it's important that I think I posed for this just to show that smoking and alcohol, as I've said earlier, is very definitively linked to patients with psoriasis. And why this happens is almost certainly due to the patients being introspective and not getting out into society. So that's very important. So lots of studies showed that smoking prevalence has increased both here and abroad. And another issue, and this is a very, very, very important issue, vitally important issue, is psoriasis. What other comorbidities are associated? Lymphoma, like with RA, appears to be, without any therapy whatsoever, have a twice twofold higher incidence. It's interesting, we've just had two patients with lymphoma in our psoriasis clinic within the last month both on a systemic agent. And the question is, does the agent produce it or is psoriasis patients, are psoriasis patients inherently more likely to get lymphoma? And I think there's good evidence, statistical evidence from Joel Gelfand, uh, who, as you know, is a, is a, does a tremendous amount of statistical analysis in psoriasis to show that there is a higher incidence of lymphoma, mainly Hodgkin's lymphoma and CTCL. Hodgkin's for real. I'm a little 
concerned about CTCL because most CTCL patients that I personally diagnose in our clinic have had a history of quote-unquote psoriasis for many years and have been misdiagnosed. So we frequently, when a patient with psoriasis does not respond well, we will start thinking, boy, am I missing a CTCL patient? And that happens. And so the statistical analysis of CTCL may be, and I've discussed with Dr. Gelfand, may relate to patients diagnosed with psoriasis who then, quote-unquote, are pro properly diagnosed as CTCL. All right, I've talked about fatty liver. And look at the last point in this slide, okay? Number one, why is it 35 years after methotrexate was brought to market, 37 years actually, that methotrexate, do we have still an issue with methotrexate and liver disease and rheumatology do not? So there's been a very good paper that reviewed this and showed that if you take a patient for five years on, and they have a total of three grams of methotrexate, cumulative, and you take an RA patient versus a psoriasis patient, you're going to get twice the incidence of not of abnormal liver biopsies and cirrhosis in psoriasis. So they, we have an issue. The psoriatic liver is an issue. And it, is it due to obesity only? In other words, the TNF-alphas that is pouring out of the adipocytes, where do they go? They go straight to the liver and cause fatty liver, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Does that make people more likely to have problems with methotrexate and also some of the other drugs that we use? And that's possible. Mortality, this is the last one that Dr. Gain, Dr. Gelfand did a study on a population-based, 500,000 patient population-based database uh, in the United Kingdom and basically showed that there is a twice-fold incidence in, excuse me, not a twice-fold incidence, that psoriatic patients do have a higher risk of dying two to four years earlier, particularly young patients with severe disease. So I think in summary, and I would include you folks particularly in this, that every person involved in psoriasis should examine patients head to toe. A cursory examination, say, where do you have, you know how many patients hide their psoriasis from you unless you ask them? You have it under the breast folds, you have it under the axillae, do you have it in the genitalia? Oh yeah, I've been struggling with that for a while, but they never tell you about it. They too introspective about their disease. So you do need to examine patients and ask specific questions in a very sensitive way. We need to look at a joint assessment, two minutes, quality of life. You should be doing it. To do a DLQI is the easiest thing in the world because it's a patient evaluation themselves. They do it before you even see them. And then check for these comorbidities. Check the blood pressure. Check the blood glucose level. And we should be the gatekeepers for the psoriatic population at large. I think I'm going to just skip over these final things because I know we started a little bit late. But basically, this is the, the paper that hopefully uh, is being submitted with Liz Horn's help from our international psoriasis group. We're going to be submitting a paper uh, within the next 10 days, so we're a little bit behind. So it was submitted, we thought, in February, but it's now going to go out in 10 days' time to a major medical journal and hope we can get this message out to our colleagues. Okay, just quickly, everybody's asking me about Raptiva. I've probably had 50 emails and calls in the last month. Where are we with Raptiva? It's not part of the thing. But basically, you all know, and I just put this in, is this is the FDA warning that has gone out about Raptiva. 
that recommends that healthcare professionals we monitor our patients for symptoms of uh, this PML, this terrible PML disease, and should be aware of the symptoms of PML so that we can actually counsel our patients. We know that it's caused by a virus, the JC virus, that specifically affects, we're all exposed to this virus. All of you here have antibodies to the virus that causes PML, but your immune systems are such that you cope with it uh, without a problem. So what is it with Raptiva that has unmasked this disease that is latent, okay? And we're looking at this from an immunological perspective as well. This is the letter from the EMEA where they have specifically stated that the marketing for Raptiva has to be discontinued, which means the drug is dead in Europe. Same thing is gonna happen in Canada and I'm certain will probably be happening here, unfortunately, in the US for too long. So just a little issue, I, I believe all of you were given the, uh, the CD-ROM that, that Christine and some of us put together for psoriasis that I hope you'll find valuable. So thank you very much for staying so late and listening to me talk and uh, I wish all of you well and thanks very much indeed.